After marking hymn number 170, as Brother Harold had asked us to do, might we direct our minds for at least the next few moments to a consideration of part two in that series of lessons that we had began last Lord's Day evening. We ask a very basic and interesting question. It's one that we've all wrestled with, I'm sure, at one time or another. How do we most effectively most carefully and most interestingly implant within our hearts and minds the contents of God's sacred revelation, the Holy Word of God. We noted last evening, last Sunday evening, some things that certainly are important as we become better students of the Word of God. Let us continue tonight in part two of that series of studies. And as we do that, we will in fact use the text that was read in our hearing a little earlier as an example that we can utilize the principles that we'll study even this evening. By way of introduction and also somewhat a reminder, you notice that last Lord's Day evening, as we looked at some of the things concerning the Word of God, we learned that various Bible helps can be a useful matter, things like a concordance or a Bible dictionary, we also noted that in using them, with regard to commentaries especially, we would always be a bit cautious, understanding that they, of course, are not by inspired men. But as we did all of that, did we also not learn that one of the critical features of studying the Word of God is to approach it understanding that it is the inspired Word of God? That is to say, it is heaven-sent not originating with man, no product of man's ingenuity or his ingenious ways, but rather it is God-delivered. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That bedrock understanding will go a long way toward aiding you and me to properly appreciate and to correctly interpret it. Isn't it also true that we learned that as we study the Bible that way, it naturally raised other questions, and the first of those we will address tonight. Again, how do we effectively study the Word of God? At the very bottom of the screen, I've used a term that in fact relates directly to what is before us this evening. We're going to learn what the word lexical means and what it means to interpret the Word of God in a lexical fashion. As we will see, not only is that vital, it's absolutely mandatory. We must approach it that way if we are to do it as God would have us to do. Almost immediately, the questions arise, what does that word mean? Could it be that we already have been taught and have appreciated that that is a proper approach? Perhaps. Let us, in fact, study a little more carefully as to what that word means and use some Bible passages to help us in that way. First of all, by way of an introductory thought to this point, in the Word of God, we appreciate the fact that the words themselves are of dramatic importance, aren't they? In fact, as far back as the Old Testament examples, we learned easily that time and again God placed emphasis upon the words that He had delivered. For example, in Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tried. Notice that implies that not a one of them is such that it is not filled with purity, with directness, and with the meaning that was intended by the God of heaven. Every word of God is tried. In the book of Jeremiah, in the opening stanza of that noble prophetic book, recall the words that God in speaking directly told to that wonderful prophet of old. He said, Jeremiah, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
those things that Jeremiah was called upon to preach were the exact delivered words of God to him. What he spoke was not his interpretation of what God said. What Jeremiah spoke was not his perception of what God said. He spoke what God said for him to speak. That's an important point. Note the emphasis on the word. Jeremiah, I put my words in your mouth. Or the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3 verse 4. When that prophet down by the river Kibar was told to prophetically relay to the children of Israel in Babylonian captivity, specifically to them God said, Ezekiel, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. Similar remarks concerning Ezekiel could then be made as was made about Jeremiah. Ezekiel was not given liberty to speak his perceptions, his interpretations, or his suppositions. He was given the word of God exactly and directly, and that's what he was told to speak. We're beginning to see a significant importance then on this word, word. The Bible itself consists in the King James translation of a little over 31,100 words. Those words are extremely critical. We've already seen God placed emphasis upon the word. What about the New Testament emphases as well? In Matthew 4, verse 4, the Son of God Himself said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Moment by moment, and with each passing passage, we are addressing deeper and deeper the thought that these words indeed are significant. When the Holy Spirit revealed them, He had a purpose. He chose the word that was intended and thus, that seems to suggest you and I, as we study properly the Bible, must lay emphasis upon the words that were used. I say all that to notice. That's exactly what the word lexical means. If you consult a dictionary and note with me, the word lexical just means something that relates and carefully utilizes words. We must interpret the Scriptures lexically because that's how the Holy Spirit revealed it. He chose the words that conveyed the meaning that he wished to convey. And if we are then to discern that meaning, we must base it upon the words that the Holy Spirit employed. However, that becomes difficult when we recognize that we live in a world where so often that seems not to happen, don't we? Individuals may well say, well, I read the Bible, but the problem, they read into it what they've heard somebody tell them it says doesn't mean that's what it says. Or they read into it what they have been led to believe that it says. Again, lexical interpretation means we use the words that are there to guide our interpretation and draw from that the meaning that God has in mind. You and I have then come to realize the importance of lexical interpretation quite often, haven't we? It's just maybe we never use that word to describe it. We know that never is my opinion or yours or a scholarly group of men's opinion to be substituted for the inspired revelation of the God of heaven. No wonder Jeremiah, in response to what God said, exclaimed in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. You see, Jeremiah found great comfort, but also challenge and correctness in the word that God had revealed. You and I today, in similar position, must rely only upon that word. 
Isn't it interesting then when we consider the importance of the words themselves and to extract those proper meanings? I thought tonight we might in fact use an example. The text that Adam read in our hearing a bit earlier is one that has caused no small amount of controversy throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, but the very matter of our principle of lexical interpretation will in fact permit us to cut right through that text and get to the meaning with very little difficulty. Let us return then to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, and in so doing to look especially at verses 13 through 20. As we do that, we're going to use lexical ideas to appreciate the thrust and the meaning of what we find on that occasion. The question, upon whom or upon what was the church established by Jesus built? You and I realize that we live now about 2,000 years this side of Calvary. We understand that many an individual has lived and died in that period. We also know that countless millions have based their life in some form or fashion upon a particular answer to that grand and glorious question. We, of course, begin by noting that our Lord promised to purchase but one church, not two, not in fact three or half dozen, but one and only one. That very thought has been a careful matter in the very text that we noted earlier. But now the question is, one ponders the nature of that church. On whom did the Lord build it? Who was the founding stone? Upon what character and basis was it to be propagated? You and I realize that today there are countless millions who in fact would present an answer not unlike the following. I've placed this quote on that screen for your consideration. This quote certainly do not take it to be gospel truth. It is a quotation from a man. But listen to his very definitive and also very strong answer. He in fact states it as though there's no question about it. Here's what he said. Jesus founded the church on Peter. Thus Peter was made the earthly head of the church while Jesus is the ultimate head of the church. Might I suggest to you that the numbers of those in the world who would subscribe to that position likely number in excess of one billion people. Over a billion people would likely give a sense that that is a correct assertion and a correct description of what we read in the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. But as I quickly know, there are many others who would disagree with that assessment. Many others, not, no doubt you and I included, who would say there's falsehood to be found in this statement by this person. Might I suggest to you the only way to know the answer is to let the Scripture speak. What would a lexical approach to this text lead us to conclude? And furthermore, when we consider other Bible texts, understanding that there could be no contradiction, would we then find that we can easily come to a recognition of what we find taught in this interesting and powerful idea? I believe the answer to that is an overwhelming yes. Would you turn back then to Matthew 16 with me? Let's notice how that scene begins. In the coast of Caesarea Philippi, we remember that this was a time when Jesus, as he was teaching, and interestingly pushing forward the boundaries of that doctrine that he was revealing, was such that he straightforwardly asked his apostles, those disciples gathered around him on this occasion, 
Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus had performed many miracles by this point. He had taught so powerfully and directly. And at this point, he was interested in engaging public opinion, at least in the mind of the apostles, as to who he was. And thus the Lord asks, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They were rather quick to provide four basic responses. Some say that thou art Jeremiah, Elijah, perhaps one of the prophets. We might well note that all of those were highly respected and recognized figures in Jewish history. Jeremiah, no doubt, one of the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament era. Elijah was a bold and strong one who defended the cause of God even in the face of Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 18 and following. And thus, for Jesus perhaps to be likened to them, at least for most other people, that would have been a compliment. But this man was the Son of God, and the Lord, of course, knew that. In addition to asking them their thinking, however, even after they responded, he then turned to them directly and said, But whom say ye that I am? It was not enough to gauge public opinion. Jesus wanted their personal response after being his close companions for so long, gentlemen, who do you think that I am? As we well remember, Peter's answer is given. That one named Peter who often was known for his boldness and his aggressiveness, who was often an impetuous fellow, he straightforwardly said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We might well appreciate Peter's answer was not the same as the other four. Peter did not liken him to Elijah. He did not liken him to Jeremiah or even one of the prophets. In fact, even John the Baptist was one who was well known at this point. Even Peter did not liken him to John. You are the Son of God. That was a dramatic, important, and eternally vital confession. As Peter made that statement, we remember that Jesus next replied to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Simply pausing at that point, Jesus pronounced a blessing then on Peter for the powerful nature of that confession, for in fact it was not opinion, it had been revealed by the very God of heaven. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. In fact, to consider that statement Jesus made, he then went a step further. In addition to placing that blessing, notice verse 18. For Jesus continues, And I say unto thee, That thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. The entirety of the Catholic religion is based upon this text. If it is not the doctrine, the dogma, the presentation that they consider the entirety of the Catholic system crumbles and falls. You see, it is important to consider this lexically. Was it the case that the Son of God was here stating that Peter would be the founding rock upon which the church would be built? And was he then further stating in verse 19 that Peter was the one who would be given the keys, who would determine the doctrine of that church, 
that what was to be taught would be his decision, that it would be his particular means of determining all of the doctrine, all of the correctness, all of the gospel. There are many today who would say, yes, we need to revisit this text. We need to ask, was the Lord teaching such? Might I ask you to think with me as we look more carefully? I would ask you to observe the first thing I have listed at the bottom. Notice as we consider again verses 17, 18, and 19. An observation is very, very critical. Verse 18, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. We well appreciate the name of this particular apostle. In John 1 verse 42, we can remember that on that occasion, in fact, when Andrew first brought Peter to Jesus, it was on that occasion that Jesus, in fact, gave him a nickname or called him by another name. On that occasion, wasn't it the case that Jesus said, calling him Cephas, which by interpretation is a stone? But note what that word means. That word Peter in verse 18 Note with me that that word is petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, a proper word in the Greek language. And notice that in terms of two important characteristics, we can definitively say this. As I pointed out, that word is masculine in gender. We realize that in our common language, words tend often to have a gender associated with them. And that's especially true in many other languages. For example, you and I tend to call children by names that are associated, in a boy's case, with a male name, or a girl's case with a female name. Well, notice here in the Greek language the word Peter is masculine. You would then directly conclude it refers to a male. But not only that, in addition to being masculine, note with me, it's also singular in character. That is to say, it refers to but one of an entity. They're in two or more, just one of this entity. As you can appreciate, the Lord used a very specific reference then when he said, Thou art Peter. But now as that sentence went onward, what else may we be able to observe? Keeping that thought in mind. Observe also that Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. Is the word rock in reference to the same entity as the word Peter or Petros that we referred to earlier. This word is P-E-T-R-A. It is not the same in Greek. And furthermore, note two other interesting observations. First, this word is feminine. It is not masculine. Whatever it was that the Lord built the church on, he referred to it with a feminine word. That almost seems to immediately exclude Peter, doesn't it? Doesn't that almost at this point exclude Peter as being the basis, the very founding element upon which the church was founded? Of course it does. But notice also about this word. It too is in such a sense that in this particular language it refers to the object of something. That, this rock. All of them are not in reference to Peter. They're in reference to something else. At this point in our conclusion, or as we continue to look very carefully at the words used by the Holy Spirit and the things that are recorded for our study, we might well appreciate that we have so far learned something interesting. The word Petros, the one that's 
by which is Peter's name. That refers to a piece of rock, a stone, if you will. But this word upon which the church was founded, this Petra, it refers to a massive rock, a cliff, if you will, a gigantic boulder. So if we might paraphrase or to instill into this the way we might say it, Jesus said, Peter, you're a stone, but upon the gigantic rock, I will build my church. The Lord made a tremendous distinction in the words that he used. He was not founding a church on Peter. The language that we've just studied will absolutely not permit it. But the point is, our lexical study has led us to a step further, though. For one might now also question and ask, in these parts that are continuing hereafter, verses 18 and 19, what then did Jesus mean when he said, I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Peter? Again, there are many who would directly say, well, there you have it. Peter was given keys whereby he had the authority to determine the doctrine, the teaching, and all things relative to the church. And of course, there are those in our world who think that that line of consideration have, has been maintained until this day. Is that what the Lord was saying? Is that the thrust of verse number 19 in our text? Please read it with me again. And I, Jesus speaking, said, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So far we have thus appreciated from verse number 18 that Jesus was not and did not found the church on Peter. And hence, the meaning of verse 19 must be different than that which many of the Catholic persuasion would tell us that that means. What then does it mean? What were those keys? When did he use them and what verdict or what result did they bring? Well, consider some other observations as we use another lexical interpretation. For you see, as we look at that particular text, notice the following with me. I did not especially write the next point on there with great clarity, but I wrote it enough for you to see what it was that I thought we should appreciate. The verb tenses that are presented in verse number 19 are different from what the King James would lead us to understand. Please look with me at that verse yet again. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The verb tense that our Lord used on that occasion was a future tense. This was something that would happen from that point at some future occasion. But then he went on to say, And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth. The impression is that this too is a future tense idea. Shall bind, will bind. But therein lies the problem. Our translators, when they brought forth this rendition is such that that is a present perfect passive form. And the meaning is this. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. Peter was given no independent authority for determining the doctrine of the gospel. What he would teach, Jesus said, would already have been bound. 
What he loosed, Jesus said, would already have been loosed. It was not his own supposition, his own personal interpretation. The Lord was saying that, Peter, those keys that you will use in regard to the kingdom, by which the doctrine, the presentation, the particular things revealed by heaven, the point is they already have been revealed for you to present. You are not the independent authority. That casts an entire new meaning upon the Catholic presentation, wouldn't you think? For we've learned in verse 18, the Lord did not found the church on Peter. And now in verse 19, he was not by Jesus given the independent authority to determine the doctrine of the church. And thus, entirely, the Catholic system has just fallen in front of us. Never was there a presentation and line of personal present presentation that you and I have been told by the Catholic ideas is the case. The Scripture simply will not support it. But what's more, you and I well know by virtue of what we learned last Sunday evening, the Scriptures must harmonize with one another. It's what we have learned so far in harmony with all the other parts of the New Testament. If so, then we can rest assured that we have reached a proper interpretation. I have some other scriptures for your consideration. If the Lord gave to Peter the keys of the kingdom, we might expect to find somewhere a reference as to his usage of those keys. If we turn to the book of Acts, we remember that when our Savior died upon the cross, was resurrected on that beautiful Lord's Day morning, and then not many days thereafter ascended back to the Father in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We remember that before Jesus ascended, he one last time in Acts 1 verse 8 said, You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Right at the same time he made that statement. He said, You shall receive power from on high. When we turn the page to what we call Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we learn the power was received. Those apostles were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit descended on them. And as he did so, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and they were able to speak in languages that they'd never studied and learned. The power we see emanating from them, beginning in verse 14, was such that Peter and the eleven stood up, and they began to preach. They preached the character of Jesus as the Son of God, and what's more, that He was crucified, that He was buried, that He rose again. And furthermore, that He was ascended to the Father and currently reigns on God's right hand over spiritual Israel. When Peter concluded that lesson, we noticed that it was He who said in response to those who inquired, Men and brethren, what shall we do? It was Peter who said, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Thus, Peter stated those conditions of entrance into that blessed body, the kingdom that Jesus referred to in Matthew 16, verse 19. Peter used one of the keys. When that group of Jews was therein gathered, they needed to hear the requirements, the essential matters that were of importance to enter the kingdom. And Peter relayed that information to them. Later we notice that he used the keys again, this time in Acts chapter 10. When the Gentiles were gathered at the household of Cornelius, they on that occasion 
having been gathered there, had been called together by Cornelius. And remember that the angel had given direction for him to call Peter. And when he did, Peter came. After seeing that vision, he was not to call anything common or unclean that God had sanctified. Peter went by the character and by the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he preached. And in verses 44 to 48 of Acts chapter 10, we notice the Gentiles were told the same thing that the Jews had been told in Acts chapter 2. They too had been able to speak in those tongues on that occasion, and they too needed to be baptized. It is interesting to note the uniformity of those two considerations. No wonder later in Acts 15.9, Peter himself could say, there's no difference between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles. He'd used the keys twice. And just as God had given commandment through the Savior to him in Matthew 16, those keys were very effective, weren't they? Notice, though, what else in the New Testament helps us see the character of our, of our consideration. Notice also in Galatians chapter 2, in verse 11 and following of that chapter, we encounter a very interesting and intriguing setting. This is one where Paul himself confronted Peter on this particular occasion. What was the reason for the confrontation? The reason was this. Peter, Peter in fact, was told by Paul, I confronted him, if you will, because he was to be blamed. We can see in that then that Peter was in error. Peter was in the wrong. He had acted incorrectly. And as verse 14 will go on to say, he walked not uprightly according to the gospel. In essence, Peter was guilty of sin. But let's take that and pause a moment. Those who tell us that Peter was the first pope, if you will, was such that he was perfect, sinless, and flawless, and what's more, that continuing in that line ever since... The person holding that office has had those same characteristics. Well, that certainly seems interesting because here we have inspired record that Peter was in the wrong. Inspired record that he did not act in accordance to the truth of the gospel. He violated it. And Paul said that he condemned him to the face because he was to be blamed. In fact, isn't it interesting that just as surely as we might make note of this, what else might we appreciate? Is it not the following? There are two books in the New Testament written by Peter, First and Second Peter. One would certainly anticipate that if Peter was a person holding the office of Pope to the point that he was the, in fact, head of the church on earth, there ought to be some reference to it somewhere amongst those two books. Might I submit to you that in the fifth chapter of First Peter we find the closest thing of any reference to that. But the point is, listen to what Peter wrote. It would be difficult to put together a piece of Scripture that so contradicted these ideas you would expect from a pope. Listen to what Peter stated. Begin reading with me in verse number 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. First question, did Peter, in the very opening verse, exalt himself above some group of archbishops or cardinals or other such apostles? 
He equated himself. He said, I'm also an elder. Verse 2, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Peter, in fact, not only did not take to himself any office of a particular pope, but he rather encouraged these elders who were equal to himself in the sense of being an elder. He said, you feed the flock of God. Don't, in fact, be guilty of taking it for filthy lucre or to have to be pressured into it of a ready mind. You be examples to the flock. And what's more, do not be lords over God's heritage. That's just the opposite, I suspect, of what you would think a pope would say. After all, do you and I not see when the Pope is on television that others will come and bow before his very feet and kiss him as though he were being worshipped? Peter didn't say anything like that. In fact, at the household of Cornelius, when Peter came to that location and they were all gathered, you might recall, some of them did fall before him, but what did Peter immediately say? Stand up, for I myself am also a man. Peter knew he wasn't worthy to be worshipped. Peter knew that he wasn't the one who could save anybody from sin. He, in fact, told them to get up. Seems a very different behavior than what we see in the face of some who are on our world today, is it not? Perhaps in consideration of these, I would bring two more scriptures to your consideration this evening, and then the lesson will be drawn to its close. The first is the 16th chapter of the book of Romans. In the 16th chapter of Romans, we read a rather lengthy list of personal salutations and greetings and acquaintances by the Apostle Paul. As he finished that letter and closed it, he addressed various remarks and greetings to a whole listing of individuals. But consider this with me. The church of Rome was in Rome. But that's supposedly where the Pope has his dwelling. That's supposedly where the throne of the Pope is. May I inquire, isn't it unreasonable to think that Paul would have directed a letter to the church in Rome, and if Peter were actually sitting as Pope in Rome, would he not at least have made mention of Peter? Would he not at least have made an indirect reference to the fact that Peter was reigning in that city as Pope? And yet, the name of Peter is not even in the book of Romans. You see, he never was a pope. Jesus did not found the church on him. He was not the one who determined the doctrine that was to be presented. And perhaps one final observation, if we mind, using the gospel according to Mark. We tonight have already looked at the gospel according to Matthew. And we have cast the spotlight on Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. If you look at Mark's version, however, of that same scenario, that same episode, it's found in Mark 8, verses 27 and following. It's a rather remarkable thing to see that in that text, the reading is very different. In that text, there is no reference whatsoever to Jesus stating something to the effect of, on this rock, Peter, supposedly you, I'll build my church. Well, you and I perhaps aren't too shocked in one way by that. 
We know each of the gospel writers wrote by inspiration, and they often recorded slightly different details about the events of the life of our Lord. But what makes this one all the more intriguing is that Mark, as far as the scriptural evidence indicates, was a direct student, if you will, of Peter. And thus, if that be true, it would be unthinkable that in Mark's account, if it was written with Peter's assent or Peter's input, that if Peter were Pope, surely that would have been in there, in Mark's version. And yet there isn't a single word about it. To conclude our study this evening, we, in a lexical fashion, have cast an interesting amount of emphasis upon the words used by our Lord. And we've learned that men have read into that many things that Jesus never said. That they have taken his wording and his language and built an entire superstructure of religious presentation. And the very foundation of it not only is weak, it's non-existent. And thus the structure itself is not strong either. Could we not then perhaps conclude by making these final remarks? Bible study is, of course, exceedingly important. You and I realize that Peter did say in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. As you and I seek day by day and month by month to come to a deeper appreciation and knowledge of the Word, we know that a study of the words that the Holy Spirit used, lexical emphasis will be a part, an essential part, of our increased knowledge of the Word of God. May we never read into it simply what someone has told us it says. May we never be guilty of simply thinking that we know without ever needing to study it. The words that the Holy Spirit used are essential. They're necessary. They are vital. And didn't Jesus say in John 6, verse 63, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Do you have the life in you this evening? Jesus in John 11 said, I am the resurrection and the life. Have you been resurrected to life by being raised spiritually, having your sins washed away? Realize that Jesus gave his life for your sins that they might be washed away. He gave his life for you and for me. If you need to respond initially to the gospel invitation this evening, please appreciate that today is the day of salvation. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 6. Don't hesitate. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Satan will try his best to find every excuse to keep you from obeying. Don't let him win that confrontation. Let Jesus win that one. For in fact, he stands at the door and knocks. He said, If any man will open, I will come into him, sup with him, and he with me. Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. And that's the only way that you and I can overcome the things of this world, to come over and live with God. If you've never become a Christian, let tonight be the night. Believe upon Jesus, repent of the sins in your life, confess His name as your Savior, be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. And if you have done that at some previous point in life, but you haven't been faithful and true to that calling, you haven't allowed yourself a lexical consideration, you haven't paid enough attention to the words of the sacred text, Come back to that first love, and if there's been public sin in that way, let that be known to brethren who will pray with you and for you that in fact all those may be washed clean from your life. 
Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you, let us know that even now while together we stand and while we sing.